stupid versus evil. This is a good axis <laughs> for exploring the institutions um, that prevail. Is the dividing line between the two, in your opinion, intentionality? Whereas you can do something so, stupid that is, say, destructive to life, liberty, and property, but if you didn't mean to, then it's not evil? I, here's an idiosyncratic definition that I think is humorous, and I'm not sure if it, it originates in Talib or somebody else, or if I came up, I don't actually remember what the origin was, um, but something like this. Uh, good helps others without concern for themselves. Smart helps others while also helping themselves. Evil harms others while helping themselves. And stupid harms others while also harming themselves. Interesting. And okay. so that definition is an interesting one where basically um, the, the distinction is that evil is smart enough that you can at least reason with it sometimes and get it to uh, help themselves more by not harming you since all they care about is gain. Mm -hmm. Whereas stupid doesn't even compute out far enough and will actually cause a loss. And one of the things I learned with, from the whole COVID thing was that many of these journos were just absolutely stupid mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. like had they act like they just reacted tribally to everything that we were saying about the possible, like, because there was a huge tail on what COVID could have been. Mm -hmm. It was there. It, it is the most serious pandemic that has emerged in a long time. And at the beginning, if you look at the curve of deaths and so on, it was an exponential like this. And we're all lucky that it wasn't the Spanish flu or something more serious because it could be more serious. There's like a few mutations or whatever could make mm -hmm. the thing more serious. Um, but the journals treated it as if it was like some stupid point scoring game, as opposed to a matter of life and death that implicated them as well. You would think that this would be the time that they would actually go in for fact finding and truth. But do you remember the, the, I don't know if you were following me on Twitter when, um, we, we talked about this. Do you see that? Like the recode piece that I'm talking about I, no. recode. So go and go and look at there's a medium article citations for the recode handshake debunking, where basically, um, I mean, it's kind of titled in that in like kind of a highfalutin kind of way on purpose, just, you know, it's kind of funny, but basically February 14th, February 15th, 2020, um, just take a look at this for a second. It's, it's hilarious because this, uh, this journal, um, you know, the thing is they're stupid, right? So they come in under the flag of parley as if it's some like neutral thing, like, you know, we have questions for you or whatever. Never, ever, ever participate in anything like that unless that's like, to first order, never talk to a journalist. It's like talking to the police or talking to, you know, the FBI, which they can actually compel you to talk to them. Yeah. And if so, then you, you need a lawyer, but a journal, just never talk to them. First order, that'll get you pretty far. It's just like buy Bitcoin and hold it. You don't need to know anything else. Okay. Right. But uh, second order is it, under what circumstances, like the thing to realize is um, these folks are in the content business, literally the content business. There's a spreadsheet that they monitor that is looking at how many clicks and how much engagement, how many tweets, how many this, how many that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give them a quote, it is it hurts their story in many different ways. First is um, 
sometimes they may just not even print it because they don't have anything new. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second is uh, they don't know what you're going to say. So you might be able to knock down their story. Right. But if you're stupid enough to give them a quote, and this, by the way, applies really to the American press. Um, you know, there's press in other countries that is, you know, like may have looped all the way around is different. Um, the, but for the American press, basically, especially tech press, um, they hate the tech industry since it bankrupted them. Um, and because they hate that these guys that they went to college with, these people they went to college with are much wealthier than them. They think that they're as smart, but it's like, standing next to Steph Curry and being 6'3 and thinking you can shoot like him. Um, you can stand next to Mark Anderson or John Carmack and hold a conversation with them. You can't program like them. They're really, mm-hmm. really good at what they do, you know? Mm-hmm. And like that skill is intangible. So because they can hold a conversation with these tech people, they they think it's just like luck, you know, that, that these guys are much more successful, but they're just way more successful because in part, they're really good at another axis. That's like Steph Curry shooting as opposed to being six, three. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so just to talk about this for a second. So basically these tech journos, um, they don't know anything about technology. They can't code. They don't know anything about the industry. They never built anything in their lives. Usually they've just like, uh, they're, they're, they're assigned to write these hit pieces. And so essentially there's a natural selection process over years where you realize that anything you told them, they would distort it. They would attack you with it. They try Mm -hmm. to harm your company, try to get you canceled. Uh, You know, oh my God, they said X. And all they're doing literally is they're trying to arson your good name Mm -hmm. for like 10 bucks. Okay. 10 bucks and clicks there. It's truly you know, the most, I mean, this is what Teal talks about in like value destroying, right? Mm-hmm. That is like adds zero value and negative value, in fact, because they will harm you for like 50 bucks in clicks. Now I know that they aren't actually themselves usually counting how many dollars they make for it. I say usually, right. but their bosses, their boss is absolutely looking at that spreadsheet. And you know, if they don't generate enough clicks, they're out. Okay. Many of them, you know, Business Insider, others, these publications have like quotas of like 10 articles a day. Right. So what they do is they do this thing that actually does work on people who don't understand what they're doing, which is they write this neutral sounding email to you that, um, you know, pretends as if they haven't already written the story with you as a villain in it. Okay. Mm. And especially if you're in tech, just assume that they're going to write a story with you as a villain in it. Um, And, uh, and pretty much, you know, many other professions as well, but especially tech, okay? Because it's like they're like ancestral enemy, basically. Um, so they write this email to you that's like under the flag of parlor. It makes it seem as if they're actually interested in getting at the truth or something. And and then they'll stab you. They'll take whatever they want out of that and put it into the article and write a story where, you know, he said, X, can you believe that? Oh my God, blah, 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 right? And so in this case, uh, they were doing this same stupid playbook on COVID-19 when it wasn't clear whether it was, you know, this deadly virus or not. Mm-hmm. Instead, they were like, uh, you know, Anderson Hartz had put up a sign saying, no handshakes, please. Okay. Among many other things we were doing to kind of try to control this. This was in, mm-hmm. you know, early February of 2020. And um, you know, I got this stupid message from this uh, journal, uh, which was like, um, 
I'm a reporter for Recode. We're doing a story about concerns about coronavirus in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area. We saw your tweets on this topic. Would you be available to chat more? And the thing is, most people who read that wouldn't actually see what was going on there. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the key was concerns about coronavirus in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area. We are, you know, would you be able to chat more about this on a brief phone call? Please let me know. We are writing this on a tight deadline. We would appreciate a prompt response. So they want you to jump through their hoop now to give them content. And the phone call is a trap also, because the mm -hmm. point is that in writing, you can kind of think about how you're expressing things. Mm -hmm. But in a phone call, they want to try to trap you with some stupid question and catch you off guard or something. Mm. And But the other bit here is a story about concerns about coronavirus and Silicon Valley. At the time, it wasn't about concerns. Like at the time, it should have been all hands on deck to like, you know, ship vaccines, antivirals, all the stuff, you know, that, that's why what I tweeted, I tweeted out this thing because I knew that when, you know, just given the context of Recode and so on, I was like, this is going to be a story about the no handshake sign at Anderson Horowitz, since I had seen some reporters making jokes about it. And the thing is, these journos, they will they'll post their drafts effectively on Twitter of how much they hate this or that tech company. And then they will go and pretend to be neutral in their in their paper. It's literally like a kid putting a paper bag over their head and saying, You can't see me now. You know, <laughs> I'm like, you think <laughs> We invented Twitter. We invented social media. Like we funded Instagram. We funded all these companies. Like you think we don't see what's going on, you know? And and so it's this like complete joke where they they feign neutrality and they try it again. And it's it's, it's you know it's like a another analogy. It's like a scammer that goes town to town. And if you don't know how these journos work, you might be dumb enough to have this traveling salesman do a deal with them or whatever, right? Buy right. their buy their goods. Then they're off to the next town because most people aren't the subject of that many articles where the, the journal will stab them the first time for clicks. And yeah. then there's not a second article because there's no, there's no future content, right? It's a phishing so, scam almost. <laughs> it's like a phishing scam. That's yeah. right. And the thing is that, you know, the because until social media, until the recent kind of thing, we didn't have enough people who could put their experience together. Wait a second, they scammed you and they scammed you and they scammed you. Oh, mm. wow. Now, now it's all coming together, right? Mm. But before, who'd you rely on to tell you what was a scam or not? You'd rely on that central hub. In a really in a real sense, by the way, a good model is that NYT and these journals more generally are centralization. Uh -huh. Right, because they're a centralized hub. Here's here's why I say that. Um, you have local information about, let's say, Bitcoin. Okay, uh -huh. you have good local information about that, and therefore you can fact check most reporting on. For uh -huh. example, the other day when they said that the um, uh, they implied that Bitcoin's ECDSA had been broken, the FBI could hack the passwords or something. Do you know, remember that the private mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> and this is like butchered it because they didn't understand what the heck was going on and how, what a critical point that was. And uh, as and they basically thought that the FBI, because they, they were still in like 20th century mode, the US mm -hmm. government is the strongest, right? Like we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, the US yep, military yep. is the strongest, they could break the password, right? Um, so you have local information, you can fact check them on Bitcoin. Okay, uh, I know something about India, I can fact check them on India, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody else knows something about, um, I don't know, antenna design or, or, or drug development or something mm. like that. Each of these people has a piece of the puzzle because they're domain experts and they can see that what is written in their own area, NYT is getting wrong. Mm -hmm. But 
and this is the gel man amnesia thing. Once you, after you see the, you know, the wrong share in Bitcoin, you flip the page and, and you read about, I don't know, what they're writing about Israel or, or Kazakhstan or something. And then you mm. think it's right. You forget what you knew that they were just so wrong about Bitcoin. You take this mm. on face value. But this is called gelman amnesia. Michael Crichton named it. But I have an explanation for why gelman amnesia happens. Why is it that you can contest the story in Bitcoin, but you believe the story on Israel or Kazakhstan or you know Namibia or whatever? Mm-hmm. The answer is you don't have better local information on Namibia. Mm. You're relying on the central hub in this hub and spoke topology, and it's like a hall of mirrors that intermediates everybody from communicating with everybody else. Interesting. So you, you, what you don't have local knowledge for, you have to outsource knowledge. You have to outsource your source of knowledge. So, uh, but in traditional media, there's only one channel basically. Yeah. But now with social media, you can start comparing notes right. and I can be like, Oh, wait a second. J- just like the traveling salesman thing, you know, they scammed you or they scam. Oh, they're all scamming all of us. Right. I can see it in my peripheral vision. Oh, they're canceling some, some kid for some stupid, you know, comment that he made 15 years ago and they're canceling the CEO. Oh, and they're lying mm-hmm. about India. And I can say they're lying about India and you can see that they're lying about Japan or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now we start accumulating various kinds of things and you can see that actually they're lying to everybody. Right. Right. Gotcha. And so, so that is kind of where we're at, where basically, um, you know, these, these journos, these, these corporate journalists are, depending on the poll, they're tied with politicians for like the least trusted actors in society. Right. Um, and so that's it. So it's the disintermediation of communication actually, that really puts the sunlight on them that um, yes. highlights it's, it's also, their deception. It's also something though, and this is something where I think there's an argument to be made that when they were more secure, because the monopoly of truth is upstream of the monopoly of violence. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And the best way of like quick way is if you can tell people that it's true that Iraq has WMD, then you can bomb them. Mm-hmm. If you can, if you convince people it's true that this guy committed a crime, you can jail them. Right. Right. So the monopoly of truth is actually upstream of the monopoly of violence. This is how quote, our democracy is supposed to figure out what is true is mm-hmm. these guys determine what's true. That's why they're so big on the current system because they have root access to it. They can mm-hmm. marionette this giant creature called the U S government. Mm. And in fact, that's what impact journalism is best visualized as a government truncheon impacting your head. <laughs> impact journalism is basically um, to quote, make a difference. And when you go and look at all these Pulitzers for impact and what have you, they hand them out for people who are, um, you know, causing someone to go bankrupt, so causing someone to get fired the instantiation of some new law, making something basically that was previously uh, discretionary, either mandatory or forbidden, right? Mm-hmm. So their impact is fundamentally harming somebody or mandating something or banning something. That is how they know they have lasting impact, right? Oh, our thing led to an investigation by this agency or, you know, this scandal caused, you know, and the way to look at that, see that that is actually true, not just to read the Pulitzer thing. What is the highest honor in modern corporate journalism? Um, I- the name escapes me. Is it Pulitzer? What is it? Well, yeah, yeah sure. right. Okay, sure, sure. Sorry, the Pulitzer is the award. What I mean is, like, what what is the what is the 
considered the highest like journalistic accomplishment ever, Watergate. What happened in Watergate? Uh, okay. yep. a, a president got fired because a media corporation ran a bunch of stories on them. Okay. And you know, what's funny is remember the thing about projection, how these like, you know, the New York Times company is owned by the rich white guy named Salzberger inherited from his father. And yet he attacks like tech founders um, and everybody else as being rich and white, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, like, so, so just like that, like ridiculous level of, of projection and hypocrisy, how these guys get by on connections and they think everybody else did. One of the things they talk about endlessly is how horrible it would be if corporations ran America. It'd be corporate fascism if, you know, our democracy, right? But there's an argument that um, corporations fired the president in 1973 with Nixon mm. because their coverage, right, was uh, sufficient to get him to, um, to, to, to resign, right? Um, and, uh, you know, basically the, you know, the, the thing about this is, um, actually, sorry, 1974, I misremembered the year. Mm. Um, so the thing about this was those, I, 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 at the time, you know, NYT was still held by the Salzburgers. Uh, I believe the post was held by the Grams. Mm. Um, I actually don't know. I, I think the Wall Street Journal actually sold to the Murdoch's um later i forget the family that that owns journal but basically it's like tightly controlled private interests were able to control enough of the population via printing stuff to get mm -hmm. them mad at the president and get fired now mm -hmm. you might say nixon was a crook and so on um he denied that he was a crook but let's just say he's a crook okay um you know before i was born before you were born but here's the thing basically cook county um, waited till the other counties had sent back their numbers and then sent back a sufficient number of votes to be able to win um, and thereby win uh, Illinois and thereby win the presidency for Kennedy. So the thing is that once we think about this as a hub and spoke topology where you know something about Bitcoin and this person knows something about Japan, this person knows something about drug development, um, the issue is that that central paper of record is a media corporation that is self-interested and distorting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they call it the mediator because it mediates our experience of reality. Mm -hmm. We know about one area and the other N minus one areas, you know, let's say there's a thousand areas. We know about one, the other 999 areas all have to trust that hub and spoke. So everybody's distorted to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Russia, you know, sees some vision of America and America sees some vision of Russia and everybody is through this noisy mirror who's incentive is to increase conflict. If it mm -hmm. leads, it leads, right? right? To mislead everybody into fighting with each other, maybe not totally consciously, sometimes totally consciously, but just so happens the ratings are better if there's more conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, if it bleeds, it leads is literally a saying. And by the way, by printing images of conflict, you often cause more conflict. So there's like a feedback loop, right? right. What makes people fight? Well, news about people fighting, so there's more of it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so a fundamental rethink of once we think about that, okay, that like that, that visual is useful, right? It's literally like a hub and spoke. That's why Gelman Amnesia exists, like Michael Crichton's point. So how do you fix that? So I actually gave a talk on this um, and this concept I call the ledger of record, but the fundamental thing is um, BTC over NYT, proof of work over proof of white. And the reason I just use that, like I'm not the kind of person who thinks white is an insult, uh -huh. but they do. 
And so using their own language on them, I think is super important to, to delegitimize them um, yeah. because like, that's like just literally pointing out that the same words that they use in others boomeranged on them, mm. hurt them much more, you know, like they are corporations, they are owned by nepotists, they are run on connections, they are basically like profit seeking. They're, they're like the most, they're the caricature of the rapacious corporation. Mm-hmm. They assume that all other corporations are as evil as, as they are. And they mm-hmm. actually make them into that. Like Facebook and Google were not that evil eight years ago, nine years ago. They like they were kind of neutral pipes. Mm-hmm. They corrupted them. I saw this happening by, by accusing them of corruption. They pushed in all of these corrupt people in there. So that art creating reality we've talked about before. Yeah, it's 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 something where I'm not sure if I've got like a single sentence to express it, but mm-hmm. you know, there was a time when Google really was a neutral search engine. I mean, this is now fading farther and farther for the young people to remember this, right? Mm-hmm. But from basically 1998 from inception till about 2012, for about 14 years there, it was you know, it, it, it would be, it could seem inconceivable that Google would put a thumb on its search results. Like that neutrality and so on was a big deal. It was only when the establishment started losing power in the US, thanks to free speech, that they went after it. I mean, fundamentally, this is the problem, by the way. The US establishment no longer wins a game of free speech and free markets. Mm-hmm. That's why they're against it. Mm-hmm. Because in truly free speech, you cannot argue them. And truly free markets, they don't have bailouts. They don't have inflation. They don't have any of this stuff. Uh, they'll also lose. Wall Street isn't into Bitcoin, right? Yeah. They're not into cryptocurrency. So um, the that's why they're fighting free speech and free markets. So this was like and an emperor with no clothes situation where they could well, pretend to be the single source of truth or free speech in the world until digital media came up around them and basically provided an alternative viewpoint. I mean, the thing is, it's easy to support a principle when that principle also adheres to one's material advantage, Sure, you know, yeah. like support free speech when you've got the best guys who are arguing and you'll win yeah. all the time. Yeah. Right? Um, it is, uh, it is much harder to support a principle when it is not in one's material interest. And I think the resolution of those is, Support a principle when it is in long-term material or you know other interests, in the sense of you know you have an interest not so much in let's say economically, but in justice being done because you would want justice done to you. You know, almost right. like a you know like a inversion or, or alternate take on Rawlsianism, not you know equality of outcome, but you know the veil of. Uh, the veil of ignorance, you'd want the same rule set applied to you as applied to others. So therefore, you know, you constrain yourself by that principle, even if it's to your short-term material disadvantage. But right. these guys aren't like that anymore. You know, they are, they could have, by the way, you know, in theory, maybe they could have used their power and and, and positioning to adopt and, you know, like uh, use these new technologies, but it didn't work out like that. What actually happened was, um, you know, I, I made this remark, what percentage of your day is spent interacting with um, goods made in China, or I was going to say technology made in Silicon Valley. It's not really yeah. Silicon Valley anymore, but imagine it was 2019. Okay, so um, 
what, what percentage of your day, let's say it's 2019, is spent interacting with goods made in China or technology made in Silicon Valley? A lot. <laughs> a lot, yeah. right? Like, and and so an interesting point is that's that's that was not the case in 1990. Right. Right. So it's like your entire environment, if you looked around your room and your hands and so on, yeah. and you had flags appear there, right? Chinese flags for the physical goods made in China, right? And maybe, you know, let's call it, a, there's no flag of Silicon Valley, but let's say the logos of Google and Facebook or whatever popping mm. up there. What is not there are like old line, I mean, it's not Ford and GM, right? It's not IBM. And with the exception of the vaccine, which is, you know, like a little bit, you know, sui generis, but um, it's not, you know, older drug companies. Um, it is, uh, it is for them. It's, it's not, um, you know, the storied American industry or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not all the guys who had kind of merged with the establishment. It's basically new blood from overseas, the Chinese, and it is tech companies, right? Yep. And uh, those didn't exist 30 years ago. And so they, they basically, um, you know, like the, the concept of the Mar March Lord, are you familiar with that? No. P Peter Turchin is this concept of March Lords, which were the, the next... The next uh, like group that runs things often comes from the border between civilization and barbarism. Like they're the the march lords because a march is kind of the was an old English term oh, okay. for like the, the border, yeah. Lord, right? Yeah, the, the, the ungovernable is, lands between states, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, right. So the reason is that they have a foot in civilization; they're not complete barbarians, but they're also not the effete you know, people from the capital that mm -hmm. think that there is no such thing as brute nature, you know, mm -hmm. they're encountering nature, they're checked by nature, they're civilized, uh, they're civilizing nature, they're, they're still in the founding versus the inheriting stage, they don't take everything for granted, it's not all just political manipulations. Gotcha. And so they're in a fundamental sense stronger. Now, in, in the US, that was basically until about 2012, uh, the frontier had reopened, you know, the frontier had closed in 1890, the physical frontier, but it reopened in 1991 when commercial traffic was allowed on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so technology moved into that frontier. It was the cloud above as opposed to the land. Okay. Mm -hmm. And because there was that hard constraint of the code had to work, the product had to sell a new kind of person, the like the digital frontiersman, you know, was, was born. Mm -hmm. And that was like this, this whole period of kind of the tech revolution. And it's a completely different personality from somebody who wants to, you know, basically gain power by manipulating the state on the East coast, right? right. The East coast this person is institutional, right? The West coast person wants just a piece of land on their own. The fundamental psychological difference is the East coast person wants a piece of the state to be able to mandate or forbid to have power over right. others. Yeah. Whereas the West Coast person wanted a piece of the network, like a piece of land that no one would have power over them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I have a this longer is, this essay the, on this. This is the founder versus inheritor, right? Yes. Founding versus inheriting. That's yeah. right. And I have a longer longer essay on this at um, S-O-T-O-N-Y-E, satonia.substack.com. It's a very flatteringly titled essay. I had nothing to do with the title. Uh, like Einstein had the Einstein on the internet or something like that. But um Satonye, I go through this in more detail, but that fundamental psychological difference um, 
actually there's a collision point and here's a collision point. The tech founder wants nobody to have power over them. Hmm. And the status wants to have power over everyone. Mm -hmm. That is the tectonic plate collision, yeah. right? Where at first it seems resolved in favor of these institutionalists because they've used their guns to push their guys into Apple and Google and Facebook and so on. Yeah. And to be clear, that's a victory for them. Like they have wokeified these, you know, tech companies that were previously very neutral, mm -hmm. but they have lost the future because they don't control Web3, they don't control right. Bitcoin, right? And yes. so- yeah. So the, the more political coercion they apply, the more demand they're creating for resistance to that political coercion, which is pushing people into Bitcoin, Web3, et cetera. Plus it was so forceful and so overt what they yeah. did. You know, it was, it was absolutely something which was, I mean, the subtlety of it was people could, if you're only running like one negative article out of five or something, you're like steering mm. the thing like really gradually or whatever. Yeah. When it's just like flame broiling people every single day, even the person with low reading comprehension yeah. <laughs> couldn't miss it. So right? this is desperation, uh, right? It's desperation. So, but it's interesting is they, the more you need to resort to coercion, the more fragile your hold on power in some ways, unless you really finish the job, right? Right. And that's why they're right, right, trying right. to be like, get this whistleblower or whatever. It's so fake, by the way. Like, you know, as a whistleblower, Snowden's a whistleblower. Assange is a whistleblower. Mm. Okay. Those guys are taking, taking real risks of prison and, you know, uh, like the, the tender mercies of the US government. And they expose real abuses. Okay. Mm -hmm. Genuinely illegal acts that um, affect not just Americans, but everybody on the earth. Right. Yeah. You can't argue, by the way, if, if the NSA is surveilling people, it's not like, it's not a democracy. It's a military occupation of the entire world. Right. You know, that's not their consent. There's no democratic process. How do you, how do they vote to opt out of that? Yeah. You know, 100%. like, Where's the right? This is just like that alone, by the way, knocks down the entire thing that there's no consent of the governed there, right? Yeah. Um, so, but, but, you know, on that point, so Assange and so, and that's what like a real whistleblower looks like, as well as lots of other folks whose names we don't know. This Facebook quote whistleblower is just, it's like a, someone turning state's evidence where they, they basically want to try to antitrust and acquire Facebook. But Zuck is going to fight, he's going to fight pretty hard. Um, and, which is good. Um, he's not bowing or bending in his public statements. And so this is not going to be the same layup that going in, you know, Xi Jinping going and decapitating right. Jack Ma, you know, from Alibaba, you know, decapping Alibaba and taking away Jack Ma and, uh, you know, not, not just Jack Ma, but Meituan and ByteDance, all the great Chinese tech companies have been decapitated and effectively acquired by the state with, mm -hmm. you know, CCP guys put in there, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, they only give like the most, uh, they, they did give some nonsense surface justification, but everybody understood what was going on. You know, in the US, there's like more, more nonsense, you know, uh, and because there's more nonsense, because there's the semblance of rule of law and due process when it's really just tribe versus tribe, mm -hmm. when there's, because there's a semblance of that, it, uh, it's not going to work meaning it's not going to work in several different ways. First is 
uh, we, the CCP, they're, you know, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, lawful evil versus chaotic evil. We talked about it a little bit last time. Okay. Yeah. So the CCP, like lawful evil, they're, they're super organized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the way, like, I don't, I think China has really changed over the last 70 years in the same way that the US has changed over the last 70 years. Xi is a different actor than um, Deng and Hu and Jiang. Like, there were a genuine, like, 35 years where, you know, under Mao, you know, uh, since from 49 to 78, China was like revolutionary communist. And then 78 to 2013, it was internationalist capitalist. And now it has gradually become nationalist socialist or nationalist militarist. They're focused on the military. They are, they're willing to take trillion dollar hits to the economy, which they had never been willing to do before um, because they're so focused. It was a poor, go ahead. Can I, let me parse that a bit because this ties into a question I I wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me that rising empires tend to exhibit more competence. Obviously, if they're rising, they're doing better. They also yep. tend to be on harder money standards, you know, I, I, and I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I, obviously, I'm a big, you know, believer in hard, in hard money. But Well, in, in the period of rising, I'm not saying they stick to it, but there seems to be this transition to where they, they kind of crest and become a falling empire, becoming more incompetent. And then monetary debasement typically accelerates and um, the empire kind of goes to a point of demise. Where is and you just described this this progression of China? Where does it is it still a rising empire? Has it crested? Yes. Okay, it is not crested. Uh, let's talk about China for a little yeah. bit. Then, yeah. Okay, so this goes to supremacy. So, you know, all the way back at the beginning, we started with the premises of the U.S. military was defeated on COVID and it was defeated in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and it was defeated in Afghanistan. It was defeated with a massive head start, 20, two trillion in twenty years, and you know all this stuff. Against against China, it's not fighting just like random guys with AKs. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's fighting a peer competitor. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that the U.S. spends so inefficiently, just like the three hundred million dollar bus lanes, it's spending all this money on, you know, like the. Um, there's various disasters that have been publicly reported. There's the F thirty five. There's yeah. the Zumwalt. Um, there's the Ford class carrier, there's a littoral combat ship, like, you know, Navy, the air force, the army, there's like cost overruns and basically everything. Right. It's like, like literally how they do it. Right. When you don't and, earn it, uh, it's easy to misallocate it. And I'd like to you to easy. speak to how China is overcoming that, that problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the thing is that China's still in their arc up as a civilization, like civilizations, like humans kind of have a life cycle when there's like mm-hmm. an arc up and an arc down. And it's been so easy for America for so long that everybody assumes that the nobody's ever known a world in America where America really looked like it was going to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I should say nobody ever. Maybe in the 70s, you know, th- there were some moments or whatever, like post Nixon resigning and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But for a while, for 30 something years, it does not look like America really was losing. Like, you know, even 9 11, it was not something where you thought it was going to be like invaded or defeated or something like that. Mm-hmm. But everybody in China has, for 40 years, they've, they've gone from literally like rice farming or something to a modern civilization. They've, they are like the March Lords in their own way, right? Because it was like nothing. And then they've got something. If you've seen, I don't know if you've seen, um, 
Shenzhen before and after or Shanghai before and after. It is like a tree growing out of the ground, except the tree is skyscrapers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's like everywhere in China. And everybody's seen that. And the progress is so massive in their lifetime that um, they have a huge head of steam in front of them and behind them. Right. Uh, now, the, the normal kinds of arguments are like things like, oh, um, China is going to, you know, get old before it gets rich, or their navy sucks. These are like Peter Zihan makes these kind of arguments, and I should, I have nothing against Zihan the person, and I agree with him on a few things, like that the U.S. will withdraw and that oil will probably be important, but I very much disagree that China is going to fall off. I think um, on these points of demographics, first is robotics over demographics. Instagram beat Kodak with one one thousandth number of people. And the great resignation is going to lead to the great automation. Um, we're already, I mean, look at Boston Dynamics, look at vicarious.com, like the robot dogs are out there. All this stuff is happening. You're seeing robot dogs on patrol finally. It's like the real future is happening. And um, second, on demographics themselves, the, the Chinese have just flipped all kinds of switches. It's now the three-child policy. Three-child policy is now three-child minimum? Is that a policy? They, they want you to have three children. They want you. So um, it's a, but, is it a minimum or what do they do? Tax it's not credit? a minimum. It's not a minimum. It's not a minimum yet. <laughs> but, I, but I, I, but here's the thing, you know, like the concept of nudge, like Cass Sunstein. No. Like nudge. It's like, oh, you know, Hey, recycle your stuff. It's, it's like that UN, you know, poster type thing. Okay. It's, it's, right. the, it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's the ideology of Davos man. Like, Hey, right. wear a mask, you know, like this, this kind of stuff, right? Kind of like we um, just saw plastered all over that wall in the Middle East. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. like nudge is kind of, you know, and you know, there's some good to it in the sense that uh, the, the idea is you're not pushing people to do something, mm -hmm. but you are, you know, suggesting it, incentivizing it on mm -hmm. the margins, nudging them, you know, to, to have better behaviors. Mm -hmm. There's a good aspect to it. Here's the thing. The Chinese state is completely willing to go past nudge into shove. <laughs> okay. And with the social credit system that they've put in place, if you, but you add it all up, it's, it's as I said, three child policy. It's the sissy men thing. It is um, they cut, they killed like a trillion dollar after school education uh, industry that was resulting in red queen like stuff where parents felt they had to keep up with the Jones, the, the neighbors to, um, educate their children beyond the other children. So they spend a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars spending all this time in these after school things. So they basically like killed this huge after school education industry. They have banned basically destroyed the video game industry where it's like you can only play video games like three hours a week. Um uh, they they uh have um what other stuff they've done. Uh they have um, they've, they've done a ton of stuff with the military where they've refashioned it. So it all just folds up to Xi Jinping, various purges of, uh, you know, they call it tigers and flies or that, that was the original anti-corruption campaign. That's what it was yeah. called tigers and flies. It's brilliantly titled because everybody who got capped by it, you know, everybody who got, you know, jailed or, 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 you know, prosecuted, you could say that they were corrupt. Were they actually corrupt or were they just enemies of the boss? Who knows? Right. Right. <laughs> I can't educate that. Yeah. Um, maybe some of both. Right. Um, because, you know, it's like if everybody there's, you know, leadership is partially corrupt then you know, I mean, statism is inherently corrupt. So it's probably the latter. <laughs> yeah. But, but the thing is, see, the thing is the Chinese corruption model, they have, it's a weird kind of thing where um, like 
they actually have executed. So there's a, there's a kind of corruption where it grinds the thing to a halt. There's another kind of corruption where these guys, you know, who are governors of a state or whatever, take a slice off the top, but they also do grow the state. Like yeah, the, econ yeah. the economic growth is real, right? right? It's not just numbers or stats. It's not just, you know, Soviet style stats where it's all actually garbage. The iPhones in our hands work. You know, mm -hmm. like like the physical stuff does work. You might argue with the quality, but it's there. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, do you know how they do promotions and stuff? Most people don't know this. No, I don't. So there's a good video on this by Eric X. Lee. Um, and, you know, the thing about this is like, one of the one of the dumber comments people make is you, you point this out they're like oh you're a China shill like to understand how they operate is necessary to understand how they became powerful and if you choose to um, engage how one could beat them but right. but it's like not understanding the org chart of Microsoft or whatever when you're competing against them you kind of need to know this stuff right yeah so what, this is a uh, Sun Tzu right to know oneself is to win a battle but to exactly. know oneself and thy enemy is to be undefeated something to that effect exactly exactly yeah. so so like this stuff where it's like oh my god you, you can't believe you're talking about. so so this hunt i'm going to give this uh link so eric x lee a tale of two political systems uh, this is well done in english now look there's aspects of it that i you know that, that don't hold up eight years later for example he's like you know we rotate every five years actually z has basically declared himself president for life this was just before the transition you know from internationalist capitalism over and he also one of the things that's interesting is um the chinese state is heavily invested in the illusion that there's a continuity from mao to deng to the present day mm, right and there's not that was no. basically a coup like the gang of four including mao's wife um, were basically jailed by Deng, okay? Um, and they were, that was like, like Mao did not name Deng his heir apparent. He named um, Hua Guofeng, if I, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and he was basically um, sidelined by Deng, right? Um, and, uh, and that's why China works, thank God, <laughs> or well, for the Chinese at least. Um, you know, you can argue, this is one of those things that's complicated, right? Uh, it is hard to say that a billion Chinese people should be poor and starving and subject to communism and killed and, 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 you know, so on like they were under Mao, right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like people still are in North Korea or under Castro and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so in that sense, I say, thank God, because Deng, like as a humanist, Deng improved humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of those people are innocent people, good people, great people who have created, you know, great things. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So 
Whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Um, Sorry, can I just ask, one, how much yeah. of that was driven by the increase in Chinese exports to the rest of the world? Because, I mean, China has essentially become the production factory of the world in the past yes, you know, 50 but, years. But that wouldn't even be possible without profit being legal in the country. Like, it was to the point that, you know, there's this uh, article, uh, The Secret Document That Transformed China, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, I referenced from time to time. But basically, um, actually, NPR of all places wrote it up. In pre-Deng China, farmers um, would sign secret contracts mm -hmm. where that secret. Do you know the story? I did. Well, this was like the the vestiges of capitalism that they ultimately allowed, right? I, I, well, shouldn't, well, say, I shouldn't say yeah, vestiges. Here's, here's, the the elements of capitalism they allowed to come into the communist economy, and then it became this hybrid version. Is that right? Well, yeah. So here's here's basically the story. So the thing is. Under Mao, you didn't own the teeth in your head. Basically, mm -hmm. farmers were supposed to give 100% to the collective, yeah. and anything they kept for themselves was evil, right? So they were slaves. So, yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah. what happened was in uh, – this is a famous kind of story, which may be apocryphal, but it's at least how it's told in China. In the Xiaogang um, – in the Xiaogang story, these farmers got together, and they signed a secret contract amongst themselves, which said, hey, guys – we're going to meet the quota for the state, but what if we all are allowed to keep like some for ourselves? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we'll all pile in, we'll meet the quota for the state, but I don't know, keep, I don't know the exact percentage. They said 30%, whatever. Okay. Even, even, even 30%. And another part of the contract said, if we're can't, if we're killed, because canceling there was killed, mm -hmm. if we're killed for this, then the survivors will take care of our children. Mm. Okay. So having a little bit of your grain, in 1977, China, 1970, you would get killed for that. And in fact, what happened was now that they had private property, they had a bounty harvest. And mm. so the local communist, you know, like uh, apparatchik came by and was going to, you know, jail or execute them because a bounty harvest showed that they probably were doing some capitalist stuff. They were a capitalist rotor, mm -hmm. imperialist running dog. Okay. Um, and so, but but they were lucky because Deng had taken over and so they weren't killed. And he's like, okay, actually, why don't we let this experiment go on? Mm. Okay. That's like the level that people don't understand how, like what communism really, really is. It's not like you can start a business and it'll take more of your money. It's like entrepreneurship is punishable by death and everybody right. lies to each other about everything all the yes. time for 30 years. It's like the most insane thing. It's not really being depicted on film enough for people to, to develop the intuition. Yes, yes. and I, I talk about this a lot in my writing too. So that would say, you could say communism is absolute statism where they have 100% taxation, slaves under them. And it's so distortive to truth itself, right? There's no price discovery. There's no tech discovery. There's capital destruction. So uh, it's interesting that, I guess China had to adapt, right? Otherwise, they would be pure, they'd be outcompeted. There's no way to run a. Well, they were outcompeted. Basically, like the thing is, they could have remained. If Deng had not managed to take over, it could just basically be a, a big North Korea today. Yeah, it'd be another Soviet Russia situation. Yeah, and who knows what would have happened? It's very hard to hard to say. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it could have just been like this bellicose, really poor country. Mm -hmm. Those exist, you know. Yeah. Like. It's not like 
um, there's plenty of large population countries that are not that rich, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they're getting better now, but basically China's actually been responsible for a lot of that development as an example to many of them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, okay. Coming up the stack. So basically, um, with how does China do personnel selection? Uh, here's the thing you, you, um, in the U.S., how do you exert political power? You can vote, but really, you join the party. Usually, you know the and you join a party, the party, but you know might be the, the right way of putting it because you don't you often you don't have a, um, a choice in a given jurisdiction. If you join the Republican Party in California, you're not going to really right, win right. that. You know, like like state office, right? Yeah. So it's really a one party state in California, and uh, that's you know true in different ways for different places. And so you join the party and then you actually try to win office, right? And, uh, and endorsements are important, you know, like uh, arguably, you know, Biden is president because he got that endorsement in South Carolina mm-hmm. and um, name recognition is important, like, you know, being a Kennedy and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's like a big part of the system. Okay. So the way it works in China is actually not... Uh, it's very different in some ways, but it's it's similar in other ways. Um, so you start out and you join the party, and then you're running a thousand person town, and uh, you, so you basically you have to be allowed to do this. Somebody in the party gives you that you know appointment. So you start. It's like being a, a lieutenant in the army. You know, you you get that's your start stand, starting commission. Um, so you start out, you know, maybe I'm getting the numbers wrong in terms of the size of town. It might be a hundred person or something like that. But one track is you, you have to do a thousand person town before you're able to manage a 10,000 person, you know, like bigger town before you can manage a hundred thousand person, small city. Right. And before you can manage a million person city, like the promotions come from success in lower levels of management. Hmm. Now patronage is a thing like, you know, there's guys who will look out for their favorites and try and load them up. Mm-hmm. But they also do like 360 reviews where all the citizenry get polls and surveys. They're looking at metrics and dashboards. It's actually run like a gigantic corporation. Hmm. You didn't know that, right? Most people don't know that. No, I, I did that, see recently where you put something out recommending that mode of management, the dashboard management, and then someone incorporated it into a small town in Kansas, I think, in their newspaper. Well, so here's the thing. Dashboard management is used by maybe the two most successful movements in the world over the last 30 years, which are tech and China. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So the two movements that are kind of run like this with hierarchies, numbers, you know, it's basically a, uh, you know, numerical slash technical building oriented um, Asian influence style mm-hmm. that is very different than what the U.S. legacy state has become. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the U.S. used to be more like this. You know, there's definitely a, an American inflection to Silicon Valley as well. But the, ma- I think the majority of tech workers were Asian as of 2010, mm-hmm. and I think it's like 70 something percent now. That, by the way, that aspect is not really widely understood um, because I shouldn't say. Uh, well, what's where I put it? Uh, frontman is not the right term because the, the folks who started these companies are genuine founders, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the frontmen, until recently, the founders, the head head people, people in public, have 
basically being white Americans, but that is, which is fine and good. You know, Furman is not the right term, you know, because they actually did found the companies and they're not like figureheads in any way, they're real leaders. But a huge number of the rank and file and the number twos and the execs and so on are from overseas, um, either either recently or, you know, previous generations. Um, and that actually does have an impact in a different way, which is there, there's three reasons that tech and media basically have gone to war. And one of them is that geographic distance, just 3,000 miles away, it's a different social network. One of it is psychological distance that it's like, you know, builder tech kind of people versus these verbal people. Again, it's Silicon Valley is now being wokeified. So let's say pre-2019 Silicon Valley. Okay. But the third is actually demographic distance, which is if you had, um, you know, gotten a stake in Google or Facebook or something like that. If you had, like, your spouse had a share of that while your media company was was going to the ground, you might have something good to say about tech. But because those journos, because those media guys in in, in New York did not have a share of these things that are going vertical, and in fact, because there's a different demographic of people, mm-hmm. very largely immigrant coming from overseas. They did not have enough skin in, the, in, in this particular skin in the game. They didn't have, have economic interest mm-hmm. in this rising sector of the economy, right? They didn't have control over it. They didn't have friends enough friends in it. There are some people who do, but it's much less overlap than there is in the you know Boswash corridor of you know Boston, New York, Washington. There, mm-hmm. there, it's all kind of you know like like the same thing. And like even Hollywood, what's interesting is Hollywood sort of started out as being part of like Boswash or whatever. But more recently, it's sort of become fused and merged with Silicon Valley and tech. Mm-hmm. Um, because After SOPA and PIPA, just on that note for a second, SOPA and PIPA in 2012 was an attempt by Hollywood to try to go and, um, uh, you know, force all these tech companies to censor online. And it was resisted then. I don't know if you remember, like they blacked out soap for soap and Pippa. Reddit put a black banner over it. That was back when tech companies were, you know, the free speech wing of the free speech party, as Twitter <laughs> right. used to call themselves, right? Yeah. And um, at that time, I think, by the way, will come again. And I'll come back to that point. Not tech companies, but tech protocols will be. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so after that defeat, um, Hollywood was like, hey, let's work with tech rather than against it. And so social media, for example, is much more important than a People magazine profile. Mm-hmm. That's how you, that social media basically defines celebrity today, right. you know, yep. and YouTube and all this text of Instagram, like, and all their investments, you know, Ashton Kutcher started this of being like one of the first to go and like invest in tech companies. So Silicon Valley and Hollywood have kind of come to a merger. You, if you noticed, Hollywood isn't making that many anti-tech movies. They're okay with tech. Yeah, 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 for sure. It is, you know, another reason for this, by the way, is that, um, of the legacy industries of the US, media was the only one that ran on a 24-hour cycle. That's mm-hmm. to say, um, you know, it takes a year to put out a Hollywood movie and a year to put out an academic study and multiple years for the government to act on something. Yeah. But the news media operates 24-7. And that's why they became the point of the spear in all these fights versus tech companies. Yeah. And CNN really spearheaded that, right? With the 24 by 7 news channel. Yes. But yeah. basically by the late 2000s, et cetera, um, all news gathering. So, so that's why it wasn't really, you know, academia and Hollywood were in the backseat. 
news media was really where the front line was versus mm -hmm. versus tech, right? Legacy media. And now what's happened is an interesting thing where that fight of the 2010s is kind of broken in an atom smashing thing. As I mentioned, it's become centralized tech and media versus decentralized tech and media. And centralized tech and media is like the wokeified big tech companies and the people who are still at legacy media companies and decentralizes all the smart ones who have gone into Substacks or are founding Web3 stuff who are doing separate stuff. And as I mentioned, the talent and the, the innovation is here. The establishment is over here. There's still some gene flow or whatever, but it's really becoming different camps. And this group actually has a lot more international talent. And I think mm -hmm. that's really the trump card that's going to win the day. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, you know, the the 2020s is about tech folks realizing we need to build media companies and distribution um, and media media folks realizing, wait a second, they want to make some money. So they're getting on Substack. Right. Yeah. This makes sense. Right? Can I and, ask? And the me, important thing, I'll say, I'll say one last thing, yeah. which is the important thing is also there's been a now a new level above journalist, which is founder. That say you can be a founder of your own Substack. This was wow. true. This was a big thing in academia 10 or 15, 20 years ago. There's a new level of a professor, which was founder. Mm -hmm. Right. And when that new level is there, that's the highest rent because, you know, do you want to have a win a MacArthur fellowship or you want to be MacArthur? Right. Of course. Right? Yeah. Do you want to go for a $200,000 grant or, or get a $200 million fund? So and this is the, have more. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry to cut you off. The rise of like the entrepreneurial journalist. Exactly. You yeah. know, angel influencer, venture journalist. This yeah. is coming, happening. So, where I, I, just, I just want to throw this question in and feel free to answer it whenever it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But if it bleeds, it leads. Sounds like a really difficult, if not impossible, to fix incentive structure inherent to media. Hmm. Can we fix the incentives of media or are we always yes. going to have this? media that just uh, thrives off driving conflict and and um, broadcasting it. Right. So I actually have thought about this a lot and I've got some proposals on this. And actually, I gave a whole long thing on this to Patrick Oshag, um, where so I'm going to I'll repeat some of those, if, you know, but but Please. there's also even longer version there. So um, the uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy rather. Um, so the short, short version is there's an information diet, just like a food diet. Mm -hmm. You have, um, you, you can eat sugar and, you know, like crap food and have your system jangle, or you can eat nutritious food that benefits you over the long term, right? Yeah. Similarly, you can consume, you know, stupid pop culture stuff, useless stuff, or you can read nutritious content that builds your skills and benefits you somehow, right? And, you know, so, Seen on this axis, normally, you know, your typical journalist would put um, Kim Kardashian and war reporting at different ends of the spectrum. This is serious and important, and this is pop order. But we, you would actually probably group them together as infotainment versus news you can use over here. Mm. News you can use is teaching you a skill. It's, um, you know, it's, it's it, you're learning how to sew, you're learning programming, you're learning... Um, like video editing or something like that, right? Yeah. And so news you can use is sort of orthogonal to, the, it recognizes all the stuff as stuff that is infotainment and mm -hmm. it, it does not affect your daily life and you cannot make decisions on it versus stuff that does. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that um, 
Web3 has enabled is uh, what I call user-aligned content, okay? So you could do it in a kind of crude way, even with Web2, but here's one way of thinking about it. What does men's health look like in a time of Fitbit? What does Bloomberg look like in a time of crypto? Basically, ideally, the ideal men's health, in theory, would be something that when it showed you an article, after consuming that article, then, you know, a few days or weeks or whatever, there's a cause effect relationship where you can see your fitness stats improving, mm -hmm. right? Or it's not really one article, it's a dose of articles because like eating one piece of lettuce isn't going to change you. But when you make a shift in your diet, you will start to see changes, mm -hmm. right? When you make a shift in your information diet, you will start to see metrics improve. You make a shift in your food diet, you see weight go down, muscle go up right? Mm -hmm. Make a shift in your information diet. You should see, you know, weight go down, muscle go up. Mm -hmm. um, but you should also see, uh, you know, balance go up, you know, net worth go up, debt go down. Mm -hmm. Right? Why do I say this? This is a completely new class of metrics. Just like the internet itself was offered a completely new class of metrics because, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, just, just, overall subscription numbers, you got individual user level analytics. You can see how much someone is scrolling the page. That was a completely new thing. Clickbait only worked, mm -hmm. but became a thing when individual articles, you knew exactly who was reading them. You right. know, before only a really huge number of letters to the editor, something would have to have a huge response to have a lot of letters coming in. Mm -hmm. For the most part, you didn't have any feedback on who was reading what, mm -hmm. right? Um, the internet changed that and now, Technologies from blockchain and Web3 are going to change that again because now you could run a fitness site where all those Fitbits could plug into it and you could see whether when you change content, it is improving or not. Mm, interesting. Okay. So yeah. this is what I call user-aligned content. You are not simply, you know, it's not men's health where it's like a guy with abs on the front page. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. I don't mm. know but you are now looking for cause effect relationships between content and then changes in a time series of data. And by That's the way, really you know, interesting. right? So it's a, it's a fundamental rethink of what the content is. And now if you think about it, um, we, we do see this, for example, um, let's suppose that I gave you, uh, here, here's a toy example, all right? Let's suppose I gave you um, five math questions a day, right? On abstract algebra. Okay. In, you know, in the absence of any training, you may get them wrong. Okay. I don't know what a group is, what a field is, whatever. Right. Um, but then we give the stimulus of this like brilliant.org educational content, for example. Okay. And now you start seeing your scores improve mm -hmm. user aligned content. Right. Hmm. And that is a fun because now you're getting you, you go back to the root of what it is this thing is supposed to be for mm -hmm. and i think this is a different way of thinking about it and it's the good thing about it is there's already seeds of it there but here's the other thing it solves another aspect of this which is it doesn't solve all of it but it only solves one piece of it okay it solves one aspect which is that the hub is not aligned with you mm -hmm. okay um the hub is out to make money for its media corporation and you're not a shareholder, so it's not economically aligned with you. Mm -hmm. And if you were a shareholder, 
it's not really informationally aligned with you either. It's like, it's like making money for you in a way that's different than the information it's giving, you know? Right. They're incentivized to sell you the, the pop clickbait sugar. Exactly. Like yeah. even if you're a shareholder in Coca-Cola, if you drink it, it's still bad for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. You might be a shareholder in NYT, but they don't have a feedback mechanism to only lie to these other guys and not you. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> so, um, the, so it's, this solves one aspect, which is a disalignment. Um, the other aspect on like fact checking and so on, that's like a longer talk, but basically the same things that we can use with Bitcoin, where you're getting to consensus on a byte, you know, that there are a few bytes, like who holds what Bitcoin, like a, um, you know, the, these, these integers, right? Yeah. You can use similar things in my view to get to consensus, not just on who holds what kind of asset, but also who has asserted what thing at what time? Because that's what actually a Bitcoin transaction is. Right. It's an assertion that right X has done Y at Z time. You've transferred this amount to that person. Yeah. But the same kind of things can be applied to other, you know, uh, 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 assertions. Yeah, yeah. And okay. so, go ahead. So this is almost like we're getting higher resolution data sets because you can actually see what content is changing what behavior and there's also tighter feedback loops so this, i mm -hmm. mean it feels quasi augmented reality almost where you actually well yeah you're measuring the, the the diet and the the actual result and then you're adjusting the diet based on the result so it's faster conformity yeah because here's the thing the content doesn't have to be so men's the men's health thing um so you know, you, you know, the term is kind of an old fashioned term, multimedia. Yeah, yeah. Right. So like multimedia was actually a real huge thing in the nineties. Cause like, Whoa, wait a second. You can put a video and an image and text and a sound file all in the same layout because video and audio were like distinct things before that you had mm -hmm. to go and play on a different player. We take that for granted now today because they're mm -hmm. all mixed together. And that, by the way, is the same thing that, that blockchains are doing. You know, it's taking assets that were previously distinct, like stocks and bonds and whatever, mm -hmm. and putting them all into a blender, right? Um, but multimedia, right, is actually something where you could take that next level. So maybe Men's Health, for example, you know, what is Men's Health in the time of Fitbit and, and AirPods? Maybe it's like tunes for your ears so you work out and like space it's like an app with with you know fitness tracking but it's also like a buzzer on your wrist to get up it's like a set of stimuli mm -hmm. that help you do something that's wow. what content becomes so you're al algorithmizing your life or your routine something like that yeah because the content doesn't have to just be like words on a page we're generalizing to you are buying a stimulus yeah and you want a response wow. go ahead like so many things in digital the the sphere of digital technology this sounds equally utopian or dystopian depending on how <laughs> it's used well well so there's a couple of good books um by near ayal and uh and, and james clear indistractable and uh atomic habits which i think are worth mm -hmm. like looking at back to back um you can summarize it where there's lots of good habits that the way you build them is basically by turning yourself into a robot mm -hmm. and, but a certain kind of robot. Okay. Where, uh, you know, he, James Clear talks about to build a habit, you need trigger response and like reward. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for example, I see my running shoes. 
I go for my run. And then I have some reward that I like doing at the end. Okay. And it could be, for example, hit a button on the computer and go bring like this, you know, because like you saw your, your workout logged or a bunch mm. of people clap for it. Like having people clap for it, it's just like, it, it seems stupid, but people need that feedback of some kind. Mm. You, you need something. It may be a checkbox. It may be stepping on the scale and it's logged. You need mm. something like ritual. And the more ritualistic it is, the, the less conscious it is that you're doing mm-hmm. because it's kind of like, um, you know, that's why we want technologies on the computer that just work. Mm-hmm. If I have to, futz, yeah. if, if Zoom is an error mode, then I have to put conscious effort into Zoom and I'm not thinking about something else. Yeah, this, is, right? this is embedding things into your procedural knowing. So you don't have to think about it. That's you just right. do it. Yeah. That's right. So this gets back to the trend. Now, of course, the problem is if somebody is abusing you on this and stimulating right. you like a, like, like a, a Pavlovian you know, dog. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I think that, decentralization does solve this where if you're custodying the code and you can inspect it and so on yourself, right? You are programming yourself and you're basically consciously doing this versus being programmed. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's always a continuum on that because you're not probably writing all the code yourself, Mm -hmm. but just like you'd have a priest, you know, be able to look at something in in olden days, you could have your local priest, meaning your developer, um, which is not exactly the same. It's a mathematician, of course, who, you know, look at the code and kind of tell you somebody you trust could diligence it for you. So something intermediate between like totally yeah. trusting versus doing it yourself, you could have revocable trust. And theoretically a market, I mean, you could assemble these things into a module, right? Of a certain goal being goal oriented. And then a market could determine what's effective and what's not. Yes. Or like yes. Run this behavioral be module to gain muscle or get cardiovascular health or whatever the aim is. That's right. And, you know, the thing is we have like crude versions of this, right? Mm-hmm. Like songs to pump you up for a workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, morning rituals. To calm you down. <laughs> What's that? Morning rituals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What we don't, what we haven't done is like the equivalent of extracting the active ingredient, mm-hmm. right? right? Measuring right. it, you know? And so, um, so that's why like I'm huge on quantified self and on the fitness track, the fitness track stuff has gotten quite good. It's like the IOT, you know, stuff. people made fun of it for a long time, but um, you know, you've got like the scales and you've got the rings and you've got the, this, you've got quite a lot of stuff out there to choose from much of it with traction. And uh, I think the next level is, you know, starting to put the stuff together into dashboards and connecting it to other things, you know? Hmm. Um, so the fitness one is, I think a good example. And uh, as I said, that's one part of it, which is how do you take change the incentive structure? Another part is angel influencer, venture journalist. Um, you have uh, these journos, um, you know, you, you may not be able to reform the current ones. They're being selected for a certain kind of thing. It's like performing a Stasi officer. They're basically like, you know, because that's what they are, right? They are basically for-profit surveillance. See, if Zuckerberg would put up a profile of you against your consent, that would be like grounds for a lawsuit, right? If Zuckerberg's yeah, employees yeah, were to yeah, go yeah, and do yeah. that. But if Salzberger's employees were to go and put up a profile of you, that's journalism or whatever without your consent, <laughs> right? That's funny. Yeah. Right. It's an interesting yeah. point. Like this yeah. one is an invasion of privacy if he even takes your public, you know, photo and puts it up there. But these guys can try and dig through somebody's garbage uh, for clicks and profit. And, and they're allowed to do this, right? Of course, they'd scream bloody murder if it was done back to them, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that's actually why they freaked out at Uber several years ago, because, you know, uh, there, there's a guy who had proposed basically doing to these journos as they're doing to others. That's why they screamed bloody murder at him, because he was proposing to turn around. But now it's become turnaround. Like, they're just employees of media corporations. The fact that so many of their people have left, especially their smartest people have left to go and do sub stacks and ghosts and, and newsletters and so on. The wokeification has gone to such an extent within their own building that, that their best guys have left the building. They don't have the power they used to um, because people don't believe them. Right. You know? So, or at least a less, a much smaller group of people believes them uh, than, than they used to. That was, that felt like a real inflection shift, even like six months ago. I'm not taking it for granted, but I do think that that will, you know, is, is, um, is a real trend. Is the wokeification a measure of desperation as well? That they're just trying yes. to really beef up the moral camouflage to justify anything? What or it what? is, in my view, mm-hmm. is um, so here's a few like kind of sort of cynical, you know, ways of thinking about it, right? One aspect of it is um that this is something that verbal people who did not make money came up with as a way to kind of like an amplified deconstruction where in the 2008 to 2012 timeframe, the economic collapse was so rapid for legacy media. You should actually look at that media corporations. Mm. It went from like 70 billion to like 17 billion in like four years. Wow. And Facebook, Google went completely vertical. It's like a mm. ridiculous collapse. You Google yeah. like um, print media disruption. All these verbal folks were out of work and, uh, you know, well, they would begin applying their skills to critique that which put them out of work, right? It's one thing to, you know, live in a house and see your neighbor's house become a skyscraper. It's quite another to have it go to a skyscraper while yours becomes a hovel because they took away, you know? So I actually understand it. So many of them set their skills and you could actually see Paul Graham has this uh, graphic uh, although some newspapers can survive the switch to online subscriptions, none can do it and remain a politically neutral newspaper record. You have to pick a side to get people to subscribe. And he posts this graph, which shows that around 2013, all of these words that were previously infrequent in the times went completely vertical, mm. like toxic masculinity, white privilege, all this stuff was just like, basically just went totally vertical. And so it's clear that it's basically like a top-down thing. This was, you know, and they have control words there like Amazon or China where, you know, the mentions kind of increase exponentially uh, in an organic way. There's an external stimulus. This was not them reporting on the world. This was them affecting the world, right? That hub was just generating signals on its own, you know, and and just dumping. Now, Now, to understand this graph, by the way, you also have to look at the New York Times stock price, right? Um, so if, if you look at the New York Times stock price, look at how bad it was doing for years, right? And then basically they started in, you know, the, the, like, a, like dumping this sugar in, mm. in the information diet. It's like a, it's like a failing restaurant company. Wow. That, it's down that basically 90% from 02 to 09, it looks like. Yeah. So, so like imagine a failing restaurant that decides to like basically put like, 
you know, sugar or even heroin and it's food or whatever, opiates, people start coming back because they're hooked, but it's a drug. Like it's actually bad for them. But guess what? You know, who's paying that bill? Like some hospital down the line, the guy has diabetes, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's an externality. It's like pollution or sugar. The the cultural fabric of the world is paying that bill too, right? Exactly. To make a billion dollars, they destroyed a trillion dollars from like cultural fabric. I want to throw just a little bit of hypothesis sort of in here too, that I think is interesting. Um, I spoke to a cognitive scientist uh, for a long series and he was making the point that people construct their identity around the things that empower them. So there's economic empowerment or physical empowerment, whatever it is, you construct your identity around it. So you had all of these very verbally competent people suddenly out of work. They have these tools, you know, verbal, high verbal capacity, I guess, or competence Yep, that gives them power, but they were economically decimated. Um, and to your earlier point that if you're closer to the founding of something, you tend to be more patriotic versus if you're employee number 100,000 or 1 million, right? Actually, you know, that that's not exactly what I said, but it's actually a good frame on it. That's why I, I think it's actually pretty So I was just good. thinking that, that you, you're going to be yes. more closely identified with the, uh, I would call, he called these sacred canopies. We call them social constructs, right? Religion, Mm -hmm. social, whatever. The, the more power you're, you have more power closer to the root. So you're more likely to identify with it. But if all of a sudden one of these sacred canopies or social constructs, like a Facebook outcompetes New York times, all of a sudden you're just kind of thrown out um, with these tools left powerless. So you're going to do whatever you can to try to attack the thing that, destroyed you. Something Absolutely. Like that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, so now the, the, so basically these, um, what's happened with wokeness is it's become something that these guys can't control, um, because it's been tearing up the newsroom itself. And, uh, it's not something that's just pointed at tech people or, uh, Republicans or Russia or, you know, China or whoever the enemy of the day was for them, but it's actually like tearing newsrooms themselves apart, you know? Right. And so, um, and that's why you had like this, you know, a series of disasters at the New York times over the last year with James Bennett and Barry Weiss, uh, leaving Mm -hmm. and McNeil and Mills getting fired and 1619 being fake. Uh, where they like showed that it was basically lies. Um, you know, they literally, <laughs> and the, the author of it put out a statement that, uh, or the, the article had opened with something like, um, I'll, I'll misquote it because I'm just doing it from memory, but it's like, we're trying to rewrite the date of America's founding to be 1619. Then they deleted that sentence and they pretended that they never deleted the sentence. They said, it's just a myth that we had said that we we're trying to move the refounding date. Just like really amateurish lies or gaslighting. And then, um, you know, the, the, the story on Caliphate was revealed to be completely fake. Uh, I mean, it's just like a disaster of a year. Mm-hmm. It was, it was basically, you know, here, here's that full list. I was just thinking, it occurs um, to me, you know, yeah. we, we, we have this sort of sanctification or deification of truth that even the New York times is trying to hijack by, uh, integrating that into its brand or whatever they're doing with their campaign. But the closest humans can get to truth is this continuous discovery, continuous inquiry process. So all these centralized media companies, they were a bottleneck on the process of truth discovery itself. So, well, uh, what I think is that, you know, 
arguably in the 90s and 2000s, maybe before Iraq or um, I think they were they were more secure in their position prior to the 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. So they didn't feel like they had to empty every bullet in the gun at their rivals. Mm -hmm. And because of that, while they certainly had a hand on the steering wheel, I mean, they were yanking it for Iraq. Yeah. Right. But they didn't with the things they didn't feel threatened by, they didn't feel a need to slant it on. Mm. Not to the same extent. Now they're threatened by everything. Right. Right. Like, you know, Cheerios is racist or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so, so there's, it's like, like, you know, I say that, but I'm sure we can find something incredibly stupid that is being called like racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever phobic. Right. But um, go ahead. Purposely trying to stir up the controversy to, again, uh, make them or reinforce the validity of their existence again we're back to no well it's it's, a, it's basically i mean it literally woke words drive clicks woke words drive clicks or at least they did for a long time now it's almost as if that was like a juice of things that now it's like everybody's seen it so much that they're right. tired of it desensitized to it yeah desensitized right yeah. but like basically for the same i mean you know and i know that fights like by the way social media is not blameless on this Essentially, you can do like really in-depth analysis of stuff. What gets lots of clicks and attention? Fights, mm. right? So if you have poor ethics or your or poor self-awareness, right? The system if it bleeds, it leads, and there's yeah. an incentive to make it bleed, right? And all of us being on social media has made us all kind of understand something of the incentives of a journalist, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like the more exclamation marks and stuff that you pepper your content with the more short-term whoa you get yeah. from it right at the expense of the commons go ahead and i'm just curious if this is very uh you know lower brain stem reptilian where we're just wired to be more attentive to negative um negative happenings or criticism from our our peers yes versus something for positive sure. i mean right well you know there's this thing about like you know how approaching a potential mate the reason that you're that you should be scared about it is that in in ye olden times you could get killed like if we're doing it wrong right yeah so like the nervousness is um you know may, maybe there's some like rationale to it right so you know by the way social media doesn't just give you the experience in some ways of being a journalist but also a little bit of being a venture capitalist because you'll you'll do stuff and sometimes your thing will go super jackpot viral right and you you'll think oh that was a good tweet and yeah. right and other times it'll go super viral in a way that you just never expected yes and <laughs> you know but or but, or but, you or but, you put together a good one and it falls flat <laughs> yes but there is also skill involved yeah. in it and there's persistence over time so it's got like something of that aspect as well and i think with the web3 twitters it'll be even more literal because the things that go viral will actually make you money. We'll pay already. Yeah. This is already happening. Yeah. Right. Um, so um, let's see. So basically, uh, you know, just to recap, one angle of attack on legacy media is we're building our own distribution. Just that's the most important. Just be completely independent. Like in the same way that you wouldn't want to build an app on on Facebook, a social media company, because it can deplatform you. Right. Mm -hmm. Why would you build an audience? on NYT, a media corporation that can cancel you. If mm. you're acquiring your audience through Salzberger, you are dependent on him. Right. Right. And they will believe him. 
Um, you know, and that, whereas if you are acquiring it yourself, then you're not, you know, like, like I respect Zuckerberg, but if I was building an app on Facebook, I would be dependent on him. Right. And you know, like that's, that's not necessarily, that's not, it's just from a, just as a pure business standpoint, you don't want that vendor dependency. Right. It's just like, you know, building on Microsoft or Oracle, they can yank the rug out from you at any time. right? Right. So, so number one is build your own distribution. Number two is their best guys are now becoming founders. You know, the, the, the creative thinkers, the Greenwalds, the Taibis, you know, the Jesse Singles, the Matt Iglesias's. I'm not saying I agree with everything these folks write. There's, there is, I disagree with. But there's, there's just a complete difference in tone in terms of how you can talk. You can talk to them as human beings because they don't have the degree of tribal bias and so on. They're, they're loyal to their subscribers. Mm-hmm. They can't be canceled anymore. Right. And so they have the confidence to actually say something. Also, by the way, when you're doing a bunch of individual sub stacks, there's actually an incentive to give a distinctive view as opposed to all of the legacy Party media journos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're all like kind of clumped into a gray mass where it's increasingly hard to distinguish any of them. Mm-hmm. And even different outlets like Teen Vogue sounds basically like BuzzFeed, sounds like Vice, sounds like the Times. It's, you know, if you actually tried to have machine learning distinguish between them, mm-hmm. I think it actually might not be that easy to do anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, because it all sounds the same. You, you, you know what I'm saying, right? It all sounds the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tone, right? So this um, is a great point, actually. So you're reintroducing the entrepreneurial element to journalism in a way it, through yes. decentralization, largely, right? They have direct That's access right. to their audience. So it actually induces them to be distinctive and honest and accountable to their audience, it, not exactly. toe the party line, it, not, not serve other uh, large centralized agendas, I guess you would say. Yeah. I mean, like just in the same way that religious fundamentalists of all stripes and actually the communists under Mount, you know, they, as, as I mentioned, they destroyed the four olds. They go mm-hmm. after, you know, the old statues or, the you know, the the Taliban, for example, in Afghanistan, they blew up the bombing on Buddhas, um, you know, in various times, you know, people have gone and smashed, you know, bits of the past. And then they're like, oh, you know, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. So with wokeness, this paroxysm of religious fundamentalism, they basically have destroyed the brands of many of these, you know, like things like, I don't know, Sports Illustrated or Teen Vogue or whatever. But you know what? There's still a market for those niches. Mm -hmm. So there's enormous profit to be made by simply going and doing like the V2 of all this stuff. Sawing off their own, their own own branch, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's actually... You know, the, for the for the for the ones who right, so, so that's kind of number two is you're going to have this entrepreneurial thing. Yep. Number three is what I mentioned with user aligned metrics, right? Number mm-hmm. four is venture journalist, angel influencer. This is kind of you know one way of thinking about the most successful media company. This is a joke or whatever, but the but it's funny and this has some truth. Most successful media company in the last ten years, uh, fifteen years was A16Z, because mm-hmm. we published a lot of content that attracted great founders that we invested in. And hmm. it's a crucially different business model, right? Rather than BuzzFeed, you know, which is like, or, or, or Vox or something, which is going for 10 million views. Mm-hmm. We only care about one person viewing it who's going to make us, you know, $100 million. Wow. Interesting. Right? And and in 10 years, right? So we have a long-term orientation. We're not sure. It's a total opposite of short-term, you know, chasing profit, uh, prestige and page views, right? We're not chasing clicks today. We're not chasing, frankly, the respect 
of others today. And we're not chasing the, um, you know, the, the dollars today from ads. Right. Instead, we are looking for, we're writing for the best, not the most. Right. Okay. We are investing in them. So we're aligned with the reader. So it's like a V1 of user aligned content. That's what yeah. got me thinking about this, right? Like, why am I not, you know, like, I don't, I may be wrong, but I'm not, I'm never lying to my readers. Partly, you know, like one thing that I shouldn't say keeps me honest, that's exactly right. But I know they're going to fact check my stuff. So, because yeah. if like a good chunk of it is stuff which I consider investable content. Right. Right. So I have a thesis on the world. I am putting out what I think to be true because I'm attracting founders who I want to back. And so if I gave them a wrong map of the world, that would also not be in my interest. Sure. I may, I might be wrong, but I'm wrong because I made an error, not because I intentionally misrepresented it or sensationalized it. Absolutely. And you're operating at the edge of the Overton window as well. And so that and that's mm, the audience that's too you're speaking to. And yeah, that's what you want to and, invest in. <laughs> and yes, and the key is I'm not seeking prestige from some Pulitzer, like no one's going to give you a prize for like, um, I'll, I'll try and name something, you know, that's crazy that we invested in that. Um, oh God, there's so many of these, but like, I'm trying to give one that you will think a thing is pretty good. I mean, the problem is everything that works, people will think is easy. Oh, you know, Coinbase, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, um, right, who's going to give you a prize for like, what, another camera app? Okay, that's Instagram. Mm. Boom, like whatever, you know, $100 billion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so prestige is not judged in like some committee kind of process. It's judged basically by the long-term market traction, you know? Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, it's not like there's some like announcement or something, mm -hmm. but it's like, oh, that's the founder of Instagram. Okay, well, salute. It's pretty legit. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that was something of world historical impact. Um, so on all three things, rather than going for short-term page views, prestige, and profit, we go for the best, not the most. We're aligned with our readers. Uh, we're investing in them and that the alignment is provable. We have built an incentives to fact check and um, we're making long-term profit in 10 years, not short-term, get a quick buck. Right. Yeah. So that's just a totally, totally, totally different mindset. But crucially, that content is still interesting. I think mm -hmm. go to future.a6z.com, right? Go I ahead. mean, it's like, but when I say we, A6z is I'm friends with them, but I, I I'm not still affiliated with them, but I was in the past, so I you know I worked there and you know in the firm. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. It's um, that type of content is I, mean, I guess I would call it the deep end of the pool. But if you're a young, smart, ambitious entrepreneurial type, that's exactly where you're swimming, right? You're reading that that's type right. of and content. We want Basically, that's kind of all that matters because the thing is that one of the things about, you know, Salzberger's company, the Times, is um, they have optimized their number of subscriptions, and the, but the quality of the subscriber has dramatically dropped mm -hmm. off. Right. They're piling up all of these midwits and, you know, Karens and whatever, and they're losing the, um, you know, 
immigrant founder and the Mark Anderson and the, you know, like the, the critical thinker from the Midwest and what have you, right? Yeah. Um, they're, they're losing the future and they're losing the, the people who can build things and they're losing overseas. And they've actually not losing, they've lost. Like yeah. they, they really have been hold below the waterline reputationally in a very important way where the, the young founders that I know just don't, don't trust them, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not a young guy in particular, but I have a distinct, uh, almost repulsive feeling to anything I read in New York times. I, I just assume it's bullshit, frankly. Yes. Um, yeah. And they, they've diluted too, and diluting their customer base, they're also diluting their sales force, right? Because, you know, your customer word of mouth would be the sales force for a media company. And, and, you, and one way of looking at, like, you know, like there's things that you could kind of use to buttress this, like, uh, you know, flesh Kincaid, grade, grade level, like you can score something as being first grade, second grade, you know, 10th grade reading level. Like they run so much more stupid, like, I don't know if you remember, but in the 2000s, there was still sort of this thing where the way they would write about the internet, they'd say like, the company Twitter, a microblogging service, they, they, they kind of affect this air of formality, you know, mm -hmm. that was that was like a big part of their brand. And then they started delving a toe into it. And then it was like a, like a joke, like, you know, Jeeves deciding to say, yo, you know? <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. like a guy in a suit, right? And it was funny, okay, mm -hmm. as a one-off. And then they, they realized how many clicks I was getting. And now there's no distinction. It's all this sort of like the same tone, you know, like they're, they're, the, the degradation mm -hmm. by chasing those lowest common denominator clicks, they're, they're taking these 100 subscribers, but they're losing the next Zuck, you know? Nobody yeah. reads it for that, right? right. And- um, and why do I say this? Why do I say founders and so on? I also mean like influencers, content creators, people who are critical thinkers. They, they have a demographic, but that demographic is less powerful over less things mm -hmm. than it used to be. Yeah, yeah totally makes sense. Mm -hmm.